Praise the sovereign God. See this right here? It's because he's sovereign. That's why. Ah. Well, we've just finished singing about the sovereign God. And now the sovereign God is going to speak to us through his word. And by his grace, his sovereignty and supremacy in all things will be proclaimed for his glory and for our joy in him. We're taking a, a detour, at least for this week, from First Peter, although uh, what I'm going to be uh, sharing today is related to the series in First Peter. Uh, the theme of this message is the sovereignty of God. Um, I'm not good at coming up with the snazzy little titles and, you know, I'm, that's, that's not my gift. All I could think of was the sovereignty of God. <laughs> um, but we're going to, if you have your uh, Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. <laughs> it's, it's always bittersweet when, um, when, when I have to preach and I'm listening to the pastoral reflections, a.k.a. sermon, <laughs> which, which I love, but almost every single time he talks about the exact thing that the Lord has laid on my heart. Uh, which is good, because it says that, because we didn't talk about it, so the, the spirit is in agreement with himself <laughs> in us. Psalm 115, um, I'm going to read the whole psalm, and I'm going to zero in on verse 3, and, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Psalm 115, and I'm going to start at verse 1. This is God's word, y'all. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, 
but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, yeah, it's, it's appropriate that we should give you praise as the God of steadfast love, the God of faithfulness, the God who is in the heavens and does whatever pleases you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship you this morning. We thank you for answering our prayers to meet us in praise and worship. And now, God, we ask that you would meet us as your word is proclaimed. Lord, increase our view of you. Remove small, microscopic views of God from our minds and replace them with a large view of a big, big God. Floor us with the reality of your sovereign kingship over all things. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This psalm is a psalm that was commonly used during Passover, uh, during that time when Israel looked back on what God had done in delivering them from Egypt. And it's meant as uh, an encouragement to the people of God um, that in spite of the fact that where this psalm was probably being sang, which is as Israel was in captivity because of their sin, um, in spite of the outward circumstances, in spite of what the pagans and unbelievers were saying concerning God, where is this God that you spoke about? Where is this God who did all of this miraculous stuff? We can't see it because look at you, look at your life, look at where you are. Where is this God? This psalm is meant as an encouragement to the people of God that, you know what? Like, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever pleases him. Even if we can't trace what he's doing, even if we can't see it, like, best believe our God is there, and our God is ruling things, and he's doing his thing. And it's an encouragement to the people of God not to turn away from the living God and embrace the idols of their captors, to not embrace the ideas of God held by those who seem to be much more prosperous in the eyes of the world. And so we see in verse 1 that the psalmist starts off with a very God-centered view of reality. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, 
but to your name give glory. This goes against every fallen human tendency. Our fallen human tendency is to say, not to you, O Lord, not to you, but to me be the glory. It was that way then, it's that way now, same way. We live in very self-centered, self-idolatrous times where the temptation is to place the focus on me, myself, and I to make it all about me. But here we get a reminder from the word of God. It's not about us, not to us, oh Lord, not to us. But to your name, give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And the psalmist appeals to God to vindicate the honor of his name. The psalmist appeals to God, Lord, don't let these unbelievers diss you. Don't let the world, like, why should the world mock the God who created the heavens and the earth? Why should atheism be allowed to flourish? Why should faulty ideas about God be allowed to flourish in light of who you are, Lord? More than likely, this is a people speaking who are under the discipline of God because of their sin. And so they're making the appeal, Lord, I know that we've sinned against you. And I know that oftentimes the behavior of the people of God gives the world a reason to mock our God. But for the sake, not, not for our sake, not so that we would look good, but God, for the sake of your name, vindicate your name. Why should the world mock our God in light of who he is? And then in verse 3, we get the great declaration. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God this morning. Anytime you're dealing with a term like sovereignty amongst a group of people who have either been in the church or around the church or influenced by the church, it's one of those uh, theological terms that can be uh, easily assumed but not unpacked very much. And so if you ask the average Christian, is God sovereign? Believers say, oh, yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, of course, God is sovereign. The Bible teaches that he's sovereign. But oftentimes we don't unpack the fullness of what that actually means so that sometimes someone can be saying that God is sovereign by using the term, but when you unpack the term, it's not actually what they mean at all. And so... This morning, I want to take time just to walk through biblically the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, trusting that even as we've been going through 1 Peter, which has been dealing with suffering, which has been dealing with trials, uh, I'm, I'm very convicted that um, our, it's only to the degree that we believe and trust in and rely on the sovereignty of God 
that we'll even be able to make it through our trials without making a shipwreck of our faith. And so we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. Let's define it. And we can, yeah. Yeah, you can go to the, here we go. This is uh, A.W. Pink from his excellent book, The Sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel chapter 435. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15, such is the God of the Bible. Amen? Is that what you think of when you think about the sovereignty of God? That God has not only the, the power and the authority to do in heaven and on earth as he pleases, but that he actually does it. <laughs> he actually does it. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 we love to sing about the sovereignty of God. That's what we were just singing about, right? Let us adore our sovereign Lord and God and render thanks unto him who's chosen a people and redeemed him for his own, for his glory. And Christ the Lamb who's seated on the throne. It's good. We love to sing about it. We love to assert the absolute authority of God and his sovereignty over all things. What this means is that heaven is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. You don't vote God into office. He's already been there. God does not sit before a panel of judges and see whether or not he's going to go to the next round. God does not do auditions. He doesn't try out. He's God, and he does all that he pleases. This truth about God is foundational to our understanding of who God is, the God of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. In other words, God is not a frustrated deity. <laughs> He's not this disappointed uh, deity who's pulling out his hair, wondering what he's going to do next. No, 
As he planned, that's how it's going to be. As he purposed it, that's how it's going to stand. He's God. What the, the, the elders say, he's, he's God all by himself. <laughs> and he don't need nobody else. <laughs> right? It's what it means to be God. He doesn't take polls. <laughs> he doesn't consult fallen creatures to find out what he should do. He does his thing. It's what it means to be God. I don't have enough time to unpack <laughs> the areas in which he's sovereign because he's sovereign over everything, but I just want to just throw a few things out for our consideration. Number one, God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you have to think about that because when we see what the scriptures say, oftentimes it can be instructive and helpful to see what it's not saying as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth means that he created this heavens and this earth and not another heaven or another earth. The mind of God is infinite. He could have made a billion earths. He could have just made one planet without making any other stars. He could have made all of the stars exactly alike. He could have chosen not to have stars at all. He chose this heavens and this earth, and that was an act of his sovereign good pleasure. How, how, do, how do we attribute the fact that there is reality and that reality is the way that it is right now? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is the way he chose to make the universe and not another. No use quarreling about it. This is how we made it. From the macro to the micro, from the greatest galaxy to the smallest microorganism, God not only created it, but he governs it. He rules it. I like this R.C. Sproul quote. If there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, he is not God. There's not one rebellious molecule in this universe. Otherwise, God would not be God. It's God who created it. It's God who sustains it. He's sovereign. Think about the animals. Why did he make the animals the way that he made them? Some of them have two legs. Some of them have a hundred legs. Some of them have a thousand legs. Others have no legs at all. Who made these decisions? God did. Why? He's in heaven. He does all that pleases him. And who's going to argue with him? I bug out when I look at, like, some sea creatures. And I, I had some pictures, but we, could, we couldn't get them to upload. But, but there's this sea creature called the, the humpback something. And that joint looks like an alien, yo. Like, it's the scariest looking thing that I've ever seen in my life. And I bug out because I'm like, man, 
God made that. What, what does it say about God that he made a creature like this? He's in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. Think about humanity. Think about our differences. All we have to do is just look around this room and see the differences. Differences in skin tone, complexion. Some people are tall. Some people are short. Some people have light skin. Some people dark. How do you account for that? How do you account for our differences in personality? Some people just come into the world with just a natural disposition towards joy. You can see I, I, I bug out when I look at certain babies. And I'm like, man, like this baby's personality is already formed. And they were in the womb a couple weeks ago. And you can already see like, man, this child... This infant, like, they just have a joyful personality. Where'd they get it from? Were they studying inside the womb? No. They were born that way. Other children, you can see it right away. Okay, okay, that child has an attitude problem. I'm not going to mention any names or any babies. But some, you can, you can just see... Three weeks old, okay, <laughs> that child's going to be a problem. <laughs> you can just see it. They come into the world with that personality. How do you explain that? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 139, verse 13 to 16 explains this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Banging. The sovereignty of God over his creation, over the womb, over our lifespans. You see that last verse 16? All the days ordained for me, written in your book before one of them came to be. God already wrote it out, our birth date and our death date, before we were even born. How can he do that? He's sovereign. He's God. You ever think about that? Some people die in the womb. Some people, like the woman referenced at the election, live to be 110 or something like that. How do you account for that? How do you account for the fact that two people grow up, same exact circumstances, and one lives a nice, long life, and another is snuffed out early on? How do you account for that, if not for the sovereign hand of our God. Deuteronomy verse 32, verse 39 puts it like this. This is the Lord speaking. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Is that what you think about when you think about the sovereignty of God? Yeah. 
He said, I kill and I make alive. Take your eyes off of all secondary causes and look back to the ultimate cause. It's God himself. Not only is he sovereign over his creation, but he's sovereign over all natural abilities and talents. Sovereign over all natural abilities and talents. This always bugs me out when I think about what the gifts and the talents that people are just born with. They just come into the world with it. They're born that way. You can't teach it. They just got it. Me and my man Gaines, we were just talking about this recently. How do you account for the fact that some people are just born with amazing intellects, the ability to process and perceive things on a natural level, and you see it almost immediately? How do you account for the mind of an Einstein? On the flip side, how do you account for the fact that some people are just born with an inability to process things very quickly? The thing that one person can take and read it, understand it, for another person, it takes time. They have to work through it. How do you account for that difference? Sovereignty of God. God is the one who makes us the way that we are. Think about athletic abilities, right? When a culture that really esteems sports and athletic achievement. How do you account for the athleticism of a LeBron James? Think about all of the things that have to go into play for a LeBron James to become a LeBron James. For those who don't know who that is, Michael Jordan. Think Michael Jordan, but younger, <laughs> maybe. Nah, he's not like Mike, but uh, I don't know. That's, that's a whole other question. That's a whole other debate. Think about all the factors that had to come into play. First, he had to have it within his DNA to be six foot crazy. <laughs> Second, not only that, he had to have it within him to have the coordination to make that six foot crazy actually mean something on the basketball court. Thirdly, he had to be born in a time when you could actually become an NBA player. Had he been born a hundred years ago, his six foot craziness would have done nothing for him, except maybe Help him reach down and grab stuff from real high places, maybe. Think about all the stuff that had to go into play. Also, he had to grow up without, like, getting shot. <laughs> he had to actually make it of age to where he could actually play. People like LeBron James should fall on their faces every single day. And thank God for his sovereignty at work in his life. And, and he should allow that to lead him to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign over all natural abilities. He made you the way that he made you, and he did not make a mistake. He did not make an error when he gave you the gifts that he gave you. He wasn't mistaken when he didn't give you the gift that he gave to somebody else. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it for his good pleasure so that you might glorify him. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It's where Moses is being called by the Lord to go and deliver his people from Egypt. 
Moses, in verse 10 of Exodus 4, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should speak. Is that what you think about when you think about the sovereignty of God? The God who gives the ability to speak or makes mute. The God who gives the ability to see or makes blind. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. How how are we going to argue with God? Not only is he sovereign over natural abilities and talents, but he's sovereign over places and circumstances. You ever think about that? Some people born in the hood, some people born in the suburbs. Some people grow up in North Philly, some people grow up on the main line. Some people born into ridiculous poverty, Others born into unbelievable riches and wealth. Some people born into single parent homes where the only parent was a drug addict or a prostitute. Others born into homes with both parents, care for them, love them, and pay for their college educations. Consider place and time. If you were of African descent between around 1500 and 1865 in the Western Hemisphere, you would have been born into shackles and chains. Those people didn't, they didn't decide when they were going to be born. God made that decision. If you were born a Jew, In Nazi Germany, before World War II, possible Holocaust victim. Who made that decision? How do you account for that? How do you account for the fact that some people are born today in sub-Saharan Africa where it's very likely that they may be born either an orphan or with HIV and others are born in Palm Springs? How do you account for that if not for the sovereignty of God? Acts 17, 24 through 26 puts it like this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God determined that. It's not an accident that you were born into the home that you were born in. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake that you were born at the time that you were born in the city that you were born, in the school district that you were born into. God determined that. 
Why? Because he's sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. Even dictate the circumstances and place of our lives. Is that what you mean when you say God is sovereign? Not only is he sovereign over creation and talents and abilities and circumstances and places, he's also sovereign over spiritual privileges. Sovereign over spiritual privileges. Consider the fact that Abraham, right? We, we all remember the story of Abraham chosen. Out of Abraham, God makes a people. It's easy to assume that when God chose Abraham, man, like there must have been something dope about him that made God choose him. Yet we see in Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, it says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham was an idolater who served other gods, just like every other idolater who served other gods. And God, out of his sovereignty, chose Abraham and said, okay, I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to bless you. How do you account for that? Why Abraham? Why not one of the other? There, there, there were a thousand other idolaters to choose from. God chose Abraham. Consider what God told Israel in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. He says, of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God's sovereignty over spiritual privileges. You know how small Israel is? For God to only know Israel? I think it's about the size of Florida. It's smaller than the state of Florida. You have a whole other world. Think about that. China, Africa. You have an entire world populated of people, and God says, only you, this small, small little place. Only you have I known. That is, had an intimate relationship with. Only Israel? Are you kidding me? What about everybody else? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Just in case, and Pastor E had a message called Don't Get It Twisted. Recently, the Lord wants his people not to get it twisted why he chose them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Verse 7. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeems you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king 
of Egypt. It's not because you were more in number, Israel. Later on, he says, it's not because you were righteous. It's because I loved you. That's it. That's why. Because I loved you. Not because of anything that was in you, but because of something that was within me. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. To bring home this point of all the other nations, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, of all the Gentiles, non-Jews, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. That describes thousands of years of humanity outside of Israel. No hope, no God. It also describes the three over 3,000 people groups in this world right now who do not have a single word of the Bible in their own native language. If they die, apart from someone going and sharing the gospel to them, with them, no hope, no God. Is your understanding when you think about the sovereignty of God? He's sovereign when it comes to spiritual privileges. The Lord Jesus spoke a number of times to his disciples about this idea of spiritual privilege. Matthew 13, starting at verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat, and, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Take note of that, the whole crowd. Okay, we're talking thousands of people here, the whole crowd. Verse 3, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Before I read verse 10, I just want to address a common falsehood amongst believers, which is that, you ever hear this phrase? Well, Jesus, well, he wanted the people to understand him, and so because of that, that's why he spoke in parables. You know what I'm saying? Like he spoke in language that the people could relate to, that they could understand because he wanted to get it in with them. That's faulty. And we're going to see why it's faulty. In verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Here's the answer for why Jesus speaks to, his pe to the people in parables. These great crowds. He answered them, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will not be taken away. Jesus spoke to them in parables, not so that they could understand him, but to hide what he was saying. Because it wasn't given to them to understand. But you say, wait, how can God do that? 
You had great, there were great crowds out there that day. How could he hide what he was saying? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's his sovereign prerogative to reveal things to some and to hide things from others. And so if you are a person to whom the mysteries of God in the gospel has been revealed to you, it's not owing to you, right? What did the Lord Jesus tell Peter when, when Peter confessed him as the Christ? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You're blessed. It was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. If you understand the gospel this morning, it's because it's been revealed to you. He's sovereign over spiritual privileges. Verse 17 of Matthew 13. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Consider, consider their spiritual privilege in being able to see the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one in front of them. But consider our spiritual privilege, which is greater than their spiritual privilege. Don't get it twisted. What we have right now is greater because we've been able to see the unfolding of God's plan for the last 2,000 years. The Lord Jesus is talking to his disciples before his death. They didn't understand. His, his death was confusing to them. The whole idea of him dying and resurrecting didn't make sense in terms of their notion of who their king should be. But here we are 2,000 years later with the scriptures, the fullness of the word of God, and we're able to see what God was doing. We're able to, to, to see the whole picture. We are privileged spiritually. Think about how many people would kill to be in the position that you are in right now, sitting under the proclamation of the gospel. Let me just name a few. One, we talked about this group, people who don't have a single word of the scriptures in their own language. They would kill to be able to sit and have the word of God, the living, breathing, active word of God expounded to them in their own language. Number two, think about the Christians who are in poor countries who lack even the basic, most basic resources. We live in a place where you can go anywhere and find Bibles in hotel rooms, bookstores, even secular bookstores have Christian literature. We can go online, have everything that we need resource-wise at the click of a button. We're privileged. Think about number three, the believers all around the country that I run to on a regular basis when I travel who don't have a solid sound teaching church to go to, anywhere near them. People who have to podcast because they can't find a solid church in their area. They would kill to be in the position that we're in. Number four, probably the most serious, consider the millions of people who have died in their sins and are under the wrath of God right now as we speak. People who are in hell right now. 
What would the person who was in hell have to say to us today? Here we are, sitting under the word of God, the word which is able to save our souls. What would the person in hell have to say about our indifference to the word of God? What would the person in hell have to say about our apathy when it comes to the scriptures and the things of God? God is also sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, Speaking of God the Father, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Speaking of salvation, in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is a sovereign work, a gracious work of a sovereign God. Briefly, let's consider each person in their sovereignty as it relates to the work of salvation. Sister Tiff alluded to this earlier during praise and worship. It's what we sang about, wonderful, merciful Savior and counselor, right? That's that's what we're singing. That's what we're singing about. God the Father is sovereign in election. Romans 8:29 it says that those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God the Father sovereign in who he chose to place his affections on before the beginning of time. God made that decision. We didn't make it. God made it. And he made it before you were born, before you ever came to this world. God, if you're in Christ, God chose that you would be in Christ. And it was a decision that he made in his own free, sovereign will. God the Son is sovereign in redemption. Matthew eleven twenty seven. the Lord Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son makes the decision. Jesus chooses for you if you're in Christ. It begs the question, wait a minute. What about those to whom the son doesn't choose to reveal the father? They're not going to know the father. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. God the son is sovereign in redemption. God the spirit is sovereign in the new birth. There's a rap, my man said, he, he controls the new birth like contraception. <laughs> Crazy. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Jesus answered, talking to Nicodemus, Nick at night. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. You see what he's saying there? Spirit's just like the wind. In the same way that you can't, you don't know where the wind's coming from, all you can see is its effects. Same way with the spirit. You don't know who the, the spirit of God is sovereign in terms of who he regenerates. Who he gives eyes to see and ears to hear. Spirit makes that decision. Always bug out when I think about the contrasts. There's always, and you can trace it through scripture, you see a contrast between two people often. Cain and Abel, David and Saul, Peter and Judas. Similar circumstances, but yet something intervenes and you see, again, this spiritual privilege or advantage. I think about it in gatherings like today. There's some people for whom this is nourishment, food to your souls. This is what's going to help you get through the next week, the rest of your life. And there's others for whom this is just, when's it going to be over? Ah, if you're like that this morning, I pray for you. I pray that the Spirit of God will open your eyes. I pray that he will open your eyes this morning. Back to our text of Psalm 115 as I begin to bring it in. We see a contrast between the God, this sovereign God. You see how big this God is? You see his sovereignty over creation, his sovereignty over place and circumstance, his sovereignty over talents and abilities, his sovereign over, sovereignty over your very salvation and your soul. This is a big God. This is an indescribable God. This is an uncontainable God. This is a God that we can't dictate to and say, God, this is what you're going to do. No, God is the dictator, not us. And so what we're going to see in our text in 4 through 8 is a contrast between the false gods of their day and the God of Scripture, who is a sovereign, all-sovereign, all-supreme God. Their idols, verse 4, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The psalmist here is making a reference to ancient pagan worship, which oftentimes took the form of worshiping physical man-made statues. And you see what he's saying there? He's saying, look, this idol, and this <laughs> Pastor Deuce preached this. I almost don't even need to say anything because he said it. 
They can't do anything for you. Like, I, I see that you carved an eye and a mouth, but they can't see, they can't talk. They're dead. But notice what it says in verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. See, what idols do is they reduce God to our fallen, depraved notions of who we think he should be. And this is not something, let's not get it twisted and think this was only something that was done back in the day. But it's done now. This is the era of the new atheists. Y'all know about the new atheists? Cats like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. Cats like Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. It's a whole uh, influx or onslaught of literature written by atheists coming at the God of the Bible. And one of the arguments that they always use is, is the objection against evil or the objection of, okay, there's evil in the world. And if there's evil in the world, then, then if there is a God, either he's not all-powerful or otherwise he would stop it or he's not, he's not all-loving. So either God is all-powerful and just won't do anything to stop evil or he's all-loving but he's not all-powerful and he can't do anything to stop evil. Therefore, I won't believe in God. Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, this is my notion of who God should be. And if God does not match up to my notion of who he should be, then he must not exist. You see the arrogance in that? Christians are always accused of being arrogant. But who's more arrogant? The one who says, God is not like how I think he should be, so he must not exist? Or the one who says, you know what? The God that's revealed here is utterly unlike me. But you know what? I'm going to humble myself concerning what he says about himself. Can't discredit the idea of God based on your own faulty notions. I remember before I came to Christ and how any conception about God that I might have had ironically, was very similar to me. My idea of what God might have been, if there was one, is that he, was, he wouldn't, definitely wouldn't agree with me. Think of it. Ask your unbelieving friends, those who are not Christians but say they believe in a God, and ask them about their notions of God and see if any of their notions disagree with their own ideals. They've made a God out of themselves. Non-Christian cults do this when they deny the Trinity. <laughs> right? Okay. Three and one. I don't understand that. So, and besides the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Okay, the word grandfather is not in the Bible either. What's your point? <laughs> and so therefore, I'm just not going to believe the Trinity. Reducing God to your fallen, depraved notions. Believers do this when we deny the doctrine of election that we've been talking about. Or when we deny the doctrine of eternal punishment. Things that are just uncomfortable to us in our own understanding. So we just say, in spite of what the Bible says, we say, that just can't be true. And when we do this, we're forgetting the truth 
of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We're not exempt from idolatry. Ezekiel chapter 14, 3 through 7 speaks about the idols of the heart, <laughs> the idols of the mind. John Calvin, famous quote, he says that the human heart is like an idol factory. It's like an idol factory creating these notions of God that fall short of the biblical idea of God. Listen to this A.W. Pink quote. He says, how different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom. The conception of deity which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of the 20th century, he was writing 100 years ago, is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of the popular mind is the creation of maudlin sentimentality. The God of many a present-day pulpit is an object of pity rather than awe-inspire ring reverence. That was true 100 years ago, and it's true today. And look at what the psalmist says, and you don't, have to, you don't have to go all the way back to that, but look at what the psalmist says in verses 9 through 11. He contrasts this false God who can't do anything with the true God who can do everything. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The psalmist urges Israel to put their hope in the true God and not the gods of their imaginations. Why? Because idols can't help us. They can, they can give us pleasure, perhaps. They can make us feel safe for a time. But ultimately, anything that we allow to take the place of God in our lives, which is an idol, it can't help us. Not going to be there. <laughs> can't protect us. Idols can't protect you from the wrath of God. Only the true God, who is sovereign over all things, can help us. Our false notions about God are no better able to help us. Oh, well, my God, I just know my God wouldn't do that. My God just wouldn't punish people. Okay. Now understand that that God that you're talking about, your God is not going to be able to save you from the wrath to come. Our faulty notions about God are no more able to help us than a block of wood or a piece of metal. So now I just want to talk about why, because it's one thing to believe it and, and understand it, but it's another thing to see it as good news. God's sovereignty is good news for believers. And this is what we see in 12 through 15. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Might I suggest this morning 
or this afternoon now, that God's sovereignty is good news for Christians because Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of every last blessing that's being spoken about here in this text. Jesus is the fulfillment of these blessings. Consider that God, in Genesis 12, 3, God promised that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. And in Galatians chapter 3, 16, we see that this promise was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of this blessing. If you are in Jesus Christ, this applies to you. Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem us. Think about the sovereignty of God as demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. God was sovereign when he announced the birth of Jesus by an angel to Mary. He was sovereign when he warned Joseph in a dream to flee Egypt when Herod threatened to kill him. Jesus was sovereign in his selection of the 12 disciples. He selected 12 and only 12. He selected 12 out of the thousands of people that he could have chosen, but he chose the 12. Within the 12, he chose three that would be closer to him than the other nine. Within the three, he chose one, John, the apostle whom he loved, to be closer to him than even the other three. Jesus was absolutely sovereign in his choice of the disciples. We see the sovereignty of God as Jesus turns water to wine, right? He changes the molecules, changes the elements from water into wine, changed the molecular composition of the elements to make it something that it was not. We see the sovereignty of the Lord over nature as he quiets the storms. Jesus saying, peace, be still to waves that are wilding out. His sovereignty over nature. We see the sovereignty of the Lord over and over you notice how through the Gospels it always says his hour had not yet come? They tried to stone him, but he walked right through them because his hour had not yet come? Why had it, his hour had not yet come? Why is that? Because God had sovereignly rigged everything. Jesus was on a divinely scheduled timetable, and he was sovereign, and nothing was going to stop the plan as it unfolded. Notice the sovereignty of Jesus as he prophesied about his own death and resurrection to his disciples before it happened. Notice the sovereignty of God in putting a prophecy into the mouth of a pagan unbeliever or a Jewish unbeliever named Caiaphas. It says that he prophesied that one would die for the nation and he didn't do it of his own accord. But God sovereignly used this instrument who did not know him to prophesy about the work of his son. Notice the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he lets his disciples know at, many, at any moment, he said, I can call down 12 legions of angels, which points us back to the reality that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own sovereign accord. 
Jesus said the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then, I guess you would say the crowning achievement of the sovereignty of God. Romans 5, 6, at the right time. Not at this time or that time, at the right time. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. I can't see that phrase, the Lord remember, has remembered us in verse 12 without thinking about the thief on the cross. Two thieves, right? Same exact situation. Both of them hurling out curses at the Lord. But yet one of them gets the divine light and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Sovereignly, he says, today, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Only a sovereign Lord can say that and have the power to bring it about. Acts 24, 26 through 29 says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was an act of a sovereign God who is in heaven and does all that pleases him. And so we can embrace this promise that the Lord will bless us. I don't know, I don't know if you, how, how you're feeling today, whether or not you feel particularly blessed or not. But just know that if you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in the Savior, the Lord has remembered you. No matter how much it hurts right now, the Lord has remembered you. Even if others forget you, even if others forsake you, even if others abandon you, the Lord has remembered you. And he's promised he will bless you. You might have to wait, but just know you've already received the blessing in Christ. And as we prayed about this morning from Psalm 23, surely his goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life. The Lord will bless you. Insert your name into this text to make it personal. The Lord will bless you. He has blessed you if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I close with this quote from Spurgeon, he says, there's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them all, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit on that throne. On the other hand, there's no doctrine more hated by the worldly, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Our response to God's sovereignty should be to praise him, should be to worship him, should be to live lives that demonstrate his worth. Let's pray.